Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is our 30th episode so it will be our third international one and for it I picked a true crime story filled with conspiracy and intrigue. I hope you guys enjoy the variety of different topics and episodes and I hope you guys enjoyed today's story. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. For no cost whatsoever, please review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The chaos of the Second World War didn't end with the surrender of Japan in August of 1945. Dozens of countries lay in ruin, and the rights to oversee the rebuild of these countries and their governments sparked the beginning of the Cold War. Communist Russia had been an ally of Western capitalism during the war, but this was more out of a necessity and the fact that we shared mutual enemies. Now that the war was over, they looked to expand the communist grip on the world and several nations sat ripe for sowing their political seeds. The Korean Peninsula was controlled by Japan during World War II, but after the Allied victory, it had been divided in half. The north half was overseen by Russia, as they share a common border. The southern half was to be governed with the support of the Western Allies and serve as a military stronghold on the Asian mainland. Just five short years after a war that saw the deaths of an estimated 50 million people, war broke out over this difference of political ideology. In 1950, a pro-communist army under the direction of the newly appointed chairman of the Workers' People of Korea, named Kim Il-sung, invaded South Korea. At this time in history, South Korea was weak. They had dealt with the worst of the Japanese invasion and occupation, and Although under Allied assistance, the Allies were more apt to stand back and not get as financially or politically involved, and meanwhile the USSR was pumping money into the North North Korea state to boost the economy and make it a successful sister nation. With the help of Allied forces, the Korean War was brought to a stalemate, and while no official peace treaty was signed, an armistice set aside a 2.5 mile wide demilitarized zone to prevent conflicts over the border and make crossings between the country much more difficult. Despite his failure with the invasion of South Korea, Kim Il-sung maintained his rule and would do so for another four decades until his death in 1994. Although he originally relied on the USSR for foreign aid, by 1980 he had adopted a policy of self-reliance called Zhush that isolated the country from the rest of the world. This would have severe economic impact as it essentially cut off trade with the rest of the world. At the same time, North Korea began a campaign of clandestine warfare on its southern neighbors. A 1983 failed bombing assassination of the South Korean president was directly linked to North Korea, as was an airline bombing in 1987 that killed 115 people. To protect themselves from retribution, North Korea adopted a nuclear weapons policy and has threatened to possess and use nuclear weapons many times throughout the years. Kim Il-sung died of a heart attack in 1994, and his son, Kim Jong-il, was named his successor. 
This would ensure the Kim name was now a dynasty and succession would be handed down through male heirs without any legitimate democratic process. Kim Jong-il had several children with different women, but in the late 90s, his eldest son, Kim Jong-yam, was groomed to be the heir apparent to Kim Jong-il. Things fell apart on an epic level after a fiasco involving Disneyland, more on that later, and Kim Jong-yam was passed over for heir apparent, and instead his younger brother, Kim Jong-un, was selected as the next heir of the dynasty. That decision would prove to be fatal for Kim Jong-yam. On February 13, 2017, a then 45-year-old Kim Jong-yam sat at the Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia. He had just spent a week vacationing on the resort island of Langkawi and was awaiting a connecting flight on his way back to Macau, China, where he had been living in exile since 2003. At approximately 9 a.m., two women approached Kim Jong-yam while he was at a self-check-in kiosk. One of the women covered his face with a cloth while another sprayed the cloth before both women ran off. Kim Jong-nam, who was traveling under the pseudonym Kim Chol, alerted airport staff of the attack. He was treated by a nurse and doctor in the airport's medical clinic, but his condition rapidly deteriorated and he was intubated and given atropine and adrenaline. An ambulance was called but Kim Jong-yam died in the ambulance en route to the hospital. From the time of the attack to the time of his death was estimated to be 15 to 20 minutes. It was soon learned that Kim Chol was a known pseudonym and had been used by Kim Jong-yam since 2010. He used it as a Facebook profile and for his email, and thus it would have been very easy for North Korean agents to track his movements. A search of his belongings produced four North Korean passports, all under the name Kim Chol, and roughly $100,000 in cash. Once it was learned the deceased man was in fact the one-time heir to North Korea and the half-brother of the current ruler, Kim Jong-un, a major investigation was launched into the attack that led to his death. The cause of death was quickly attributed to liquid in the wet cloth the unknown women had held over his face. This was identified as VX poison gas, a deadly nerve agent. Attempts to develop VX poison gas began in Germany before World War II, however the development was never completed. British scientists took over the development and completed the work in the early 1950s. Originally designed as a pesticide, the toxicity of the liquid was deemed too high for commercial use and the military took over the development. It was dubbed Venomous Agent X which was shortened to VX. America developed a weaponized version of VX in 1961, with many other countries rushing to create their own version. The USSR developed VR, or Russian V-Agent, and it is believed some of this was given to Cuba, who in turn used it during the Cold War-fueled Angolian Civil War in Africa. Traces of VR were found in the soil and gas detection kits in areas hit by Cuban troops. Saddam Hussein was alleged to have used a form of VX gas against the Kurds in a 1988 chemical attack. He would later deny that he had developed the weapon, and while no stockpiles of the chemicals were found, warheads discovered after the invasion of Iraq had traces of VX on them. Prior to the attack on Kim Jong-un, the only known death from a VX attack was a man in Tokyo who was targeted by an extremist group known as 
Alm Shinraiko, the group that notoriously carried out two large-scale chemical attacks in Japan using sarin gas. The U.S. has led the effort in trying to rid the world of VX gas. It stopped production in 1969 when it abandoned its chemical weapons program, and as of 2015, it had claimed to destroy 98% of its stockpile of VX. While many other countries have followed suit, many have not, including North Korea. Now getting back to the story, as the attack occurred on Malaysian soil, it fell to the Malaysian police to investigate the crime. They obtained security footage of the incident, and within two days, they had identified the two women involved. They were a 28-year-old Vietnamese woman named Don Thai Hoang and a 25-year-old Indonesian woman named Siti Aisya. Both women cooperated with the investigation and told police they were instructed by four men who had been traveling with to team up and play a prank on a man. The man was pointed out to them and they were told that one woman needed to hold the cloth over the man's face and the other would spray it with a liquid. Further investigation would reveal that the men they were traveling with were believed to all have ties to North Korea and likely recruited the women as traveling companions as part of the assassination plot. The women denied any knowledge that they were spraying the man with the deadly nerve agent VX. This seemed to be backed up by CCTV footage that shows the women casually handling the deadly chemicals before the attack. An autopsy conducted on Kim Jong-yum, which was protested by the North Korean government, resulted in a positive identification of the man as Kim Jong-yum and traces of VX chemicals were found throughout his body and bodily fluids. Chemical analysis of his face revealed the presence of precursor chemicals. These chemicals are required to complete a later chemical reaction. It is believed the cloth held the precursor chemicals and the liquid provided the remaining chemicals needed for the VX gas. This would allow each woman to carry a part of the reaction without being exposed until the time of the application, ensuring they didn't die before they could complete the attack. One of the suspects did admit to feeling nauseous after the attack and it is believed that they had suffered a minor exposure. However, it is also believed that the North Koreans expected both women and anyone who came in contact with Kim Jong-un to die from secondary exposure to the VX, which would have complicated the investigation. Experts believe that the VX used was several years old, and as VX is prone to degradation, the chemical was powerful enough to kill Kim Jong-un based on the massive dose he received, but not powerful enough to kill or significantly affect the attackers or first responders. While investigating the attackers, police revealed that Siti Asaya worked in Kuala Lumpur as a masseuse. She regularly returned to Indonesia to visit her mother and her son, and during one of these visits, she told her mother that she had been recruited to do pranks for a Chinese TV show. The men who hired her in January of 2017 paid her to do the same stunt she did with Kim Jong-nam at least 10 times before the mid-February attack. The stunt was a little different each time, but she was offered $200 to run up to random men and put her hands on their face and kiss them on the cheek before running away while someone filmed it. Don Thai Hong was recruited from her hometown of Hanoi, Vietnam. She was also offered $200 to do the same prank in several locations. However, just before the attack, it was revealed that they would do a new prank and they would be working together for the first time. 
They were told the man, they were told that the man they were targeting for the prank was a paid actor and would go along with the prank and that it involved spraying water on his face. They were each offered $100 and then agreed to the job, not knowing the target was Kim Jong Yum, not a paid actor, and it wasn't water they were spraying in his face, but a combination of VX gas, uh, poison liquid. The man who hired the woman was identified as Ri Jia, a North Korean citizen. By the time they identified the man, he was already in the North Korean embassy and therefore untouchable. In fact, all the men that traveled with the women that day were identified as North Korean operatives and they had all either fled to North Korea or sought refuge in the North Korean embassy. The Malaysian police, under pressure from the world and North Korea, made an announcement that they believed the women did in fact know their target and they knew in fact the substance was poison. They claimed the pranks the women claimed to have done were actually practice runs of the actual attack. At the same time, police were able to gain access to several of the North Korean operatives that hired the women, and soon the men were released without charges. This was despite several key connections found between the men and positions within the North Korean government and connections to the women accused of the attack. It was announced that the women would face murder charges in Malaysia, which carries an automatic death sentence if convicted. Interpol conducted a forensic exam of the laptop Kim Jong-nam was carrying at the time of his death and showed that he had accessed a USB flash drive while on vacation and that flash drive was now missing. The murder trial for the women began on October 2nd, 2017, roughly eight months after the attacks. North Korea had continued to deny the death was a result of VX poisoning and claimed Kim Jong-nam had a bad heart and likely died from a heart attack. This was brought up at trial but dismissed due to overwhelming evidence of the presence of VX nerve agent found on and in Kim Jong-nam at the time of his death and even on his clothing. Part of the trial had to be conducted in a safe laboratory due to the clothing with VX still on it being presented as evidence. Malaysian police would come under fire several times during the trial especially after CCTV footage clearly showed the four men traveling with the women and police were able to identify all four men but claimed no charges were brought against them due to lack of evidence of their involvement. They also came under fire when a statement from a friend of Huang's surfaced from the time after the attack stating that she had also been approached to make prank videos but couldn't leave the country due to the fact that she ran a bar and had a small child and that she suggested Huang go instead. Malaysian investigators never followed up with his friend, and her lawyer used this in court to show that investigators didn't want the truth, they wanted to blame the women and avoid diplomatic issues with North Korea. The lawyer for Siti Asa also blasted the investigation as key components of the actions taken by her client after the attack were omitted from the final report. After handling VX poison, the CCTV footage showed Asa adjusting her sunglasses. This part of the video was not shown in an effort to make Asaya look like she knew she was handling something toxic. The same accusations were leveled by Hong's attorney. Her client had gone to the bathroom to wash her hands after the incident, evidence used by the prosecution to show that she knew she had handled VX. However, it was admitted that Huang touched her hair several times before washing her hands and used the sink furthest from the door. 
These are two actions not likely to be taken by someone concerned about having a deadly liquid on their hands. Both lawyers presented videos showing the women engaging in pranks as they had told investigators they were paid to do. None of the pranks simulated the attack on Kim Jong-yam and the women were solo in the pranks as they had told investigators when they were first arrested. The trial went through several phases of postponement. The trial began on October 2nd, 2017 and was paused a month later and then resumed in January of 2018. The closing arguments were in June of 2018 and then the case was put on hold until August of 2018 and later again put on hold until March of 2019. In March of 2019, Siti Asya was released from prison and all charges were dropped after a deal was struck between the Indonesian government and the Malaysian Attorney General. The Vietnamese government requested the same deal for Huang and was denied. This fueled new conspiracy theories and calls from Huang's lawyer to drop the charges. The initial prosecution had been based on a case involving the two women working together to kill Kim Jong-yam, but now one woman was released of all charges, so it seemed impossible they could try the other one alone. With pressure building against the Malaysian prosecution, they approached Huang with a plea deal. If she pled guilty, she would receive a sentence of three years and four months, roughly the amount of time she had already spent in prison. She agreed, and after signing the deal on April 1, 2019, she was released on May 3rd of 2019. So that wraps up the investigation and legal proceedings. There are a lot of theories as to what the true story behind the assassination was. So as I promised earlier, this story begins with a trip to Tokyo Disneyland by Kim Jong-yam in 2001. In May of that year, Kim Jong-yam was arrested at the Tokyo airport after trying to gain access to Japan using a fraudulent Dominican passport. He was with two women and his four-year-old son. The incident was covered on a global scale and brought shame and embarrassment to his father, Kim Jong-il, who had continued his father's legacy of isolationism. By 2003, the North Korean government had started massive propaganda campaigns for the mother of Kim Jong-un, indicating that the half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, was no longer the heir apparent. By late 2003, Kim Jong-nam was living in exile in Macau, China. He would tell sources that while the Tokyo Disney incident was a major factor in the decision to remove him from the line of succession, he was already losing favor before that due to his more moderate ideology and approval of a more capitalistic approach to the economy. He had always had close ties to China, and they provided him exile, and it is believed that China would supplant him as a puppet ruler of North Korea if the existing government fell into ruin. As early as 2006, Kim Jong-nam was the target of several assassination attempts, believed to be orchestrated by his father, his half-brother, or both. When his father died in 2011, he flew to North Korea to visit his father. He met with his half-brother, Kim Jong-un, for the first time due to a practice of keeping potential successors separated from birth until rule. He apparently visited their shared father's body with Kim Jong-un and then left prior to the funeral. In 2012, a book titled My Father, Kim Jong-il and Me, was authored by a Japanese journalist who had interviewed Kim Jong-yam on numerous occasions. 
the book made several accusations against the now ruler of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, including that the government would collapse because Kim Jong-un is too young and inexperienced to lead the country. This led intelligent officials to warn Kim Jong-un that Kim Jong-un had a standing order to kill him. This led to another failed assassination attempt in 2012. After his death, several sources claimed that Kim Jong-un was working with the CIA, selling them information on operations inside North Korea, and that Kim Jong-un regularly met with CIA agents who supplied him with briefcases of cash. It is therefore believed that Kim Jong-un may have met with CIA agents on his vacation as, and was returning with cash after providing a flash drive of information to CIA agents. So that kind of ends the story uh, of this. I mean, it's, it's a lot of information to digest, and I wanted to get the whole story out there before I started to, to break down different aspects of it because you really need to absorb the entire background of these two guys, background of the country and the trial and everything like that, I think in, in kind of one dose without interruption. So now that we've done that, again, I North Korea has always been this kind of secretive country. I mean, I was born in 1981, so during the Cold War, but kind of at the end of it. But even since then, there's been all the issues with human rights violations and these missile tests and attacks on South Korean targets. So it's always been kind of a point of intrigue. It's this nation that has this isolationist look to it and somehow it, it still functions. Some people will question how well it functions because it's known for not letting foreign officials and reporters and that kind of stuff into it. And it was interesting as I was looking at some of the maps to make sure I was correctly covering some of the history and, and whatnot, I noticed that if you look at a map of South Korea, there's a lot of large cities that kind of dot the landscape. And then if you go up into North Korea, there isn't and either just because of a lack of knowledge of where these cities and population centers are or whether there aren't any because the the country just can't progress because they've isolated themselves so it was just really interesting to study this case and look at the murder and there's no doubt about it this was an assassination a successful one completed by North Korean operatives on this on Kim Jong-nam in the Kuala Lumpur airport. And I remember this when this happened and I remember just thinking I think there was a report a few years earlier where Kim Jong-un had his uncle executed because he thought he was selling state secrets or whatever it may be and then now his half-brother is murdered, but it's because he was in exile. It's not like you could just execute him and rig the trial or anything. But what just shocked me was how politically driven everything about this case was. I didn't break it down in the actual investigation part, but 
from day one, North Korea was doing everything they could to interfere with this investigation, whether it was hiding their operatives, whether it was claiming that there's a heart attack, uh, that they didn't want an autopsy done on the body. I mean, everything you can think of, you know, if you're responsible for putting the kill order out on somebody and then that person dies and everybody's looking into why this person dies, of course, you're going to try to do everything you can to shift blame from yourself. But in the meantime, it's just making things look worse for North Korea at this point. But what shocked me was how much Malaysia went along with a lot of North Korea's requests on this and how even though Interpol was involved, there seemed to be a complete lack of desire to actually hold any of these guys accountable. And yes, I understand that all they had on the CCTV footage was the two women who actually, quote unquote, did the attack on Kim Jong-nam, but everything that I could see from just the research that I did, what was presented at the trial, from the very get-go, these two women were just, quote-unquote, fall guys. And they were recruited, obviously, in a impoverished situation. These women are offered, I think it was $200, and I couldn't see if that was for all of the pranks they did or if it was $200 per prank that they pulled, but I think they said they did about 10 of these pranks. So whether it's $200 or $2,000, it's a lot of money to these women. This is why they're going along with it. And they're hoping that maybe this, ex this exposure will get them larger gigs and all this stuff. And they had no idea, according to them, they had no idea that these guys that they're traveling with that were, quote unquote, their handlers or however you want to look at it, that the producers behind this prank show were North Korean operatives. And some people will argue, they'll play devil's advocate and say maybe these women did know, they just didn't care, they were just looking for payday. But I, I watched the video and several of the, the news articles about this. And one thing that I didn't cover in the story was, so after these women did this prank, I think they, I think they knew there was something more in that liquid than just water because they did very quickly want to go wash their hands afterwards but they could have just been told you know it's it's pepper spray or it's something along those lines and you just want to wash your hands afterwards or maybe they just felt like they probably should uh, after this prank but they did not react in a way a like as if they were carrying this deadly nerve agent at least not in the video and then afterwards they can actually be seen looking around because the idea was they played this prank this guy was in on it it was more going to be the capture the reaction of the crowd that's how it was sold to them and so after they do this prank on this guy that supposedly is supposed to know that this prank is going to get pulled on him they go off to the bathroom to wash to wash up they come back out and these guys are gone they were supposed to get paid, I think it was only $100 for this prank because they were doing it together. So I guess that $200, instead of $200 for one person, they split that $200 so they each get 100 And they come back out and these guys are gone. The attack's been completed. This was 
100% an assassination plot the whole time. And these women are looking for these guys to collect their $100, and these guys are gone. So the one, she wanders off somewhere on foot, and the other one goes and grabs a taxi. I mean, they aren't actions like somebody who just completed an assassination and is trying to get out of there without being seen as quickly as possible. And so, honestly, I think this entire time, again, they were the fall girls. It allowed them to get close to this guy and complete this attack before anybody else knew what was happening. And then these guys said to the wind, they're off to the embassy, they're back to, to North Korea as soon as this is done. And with all that evidence and with all the, the power of Interpol and all kind of stuff, no charges are brought against these guys. Yet they put these women through a trial, basically put them on trial for their life. And they're claiming and swearing up and down that they didn't do this and at the same time the Malaysian government that's investigating this that put them on trial isn't following up on all these leads that could potentially exonerate the women they're showing only portions of the video that show the attack they're not showing parts where they're touching their hair afterwards or adjusting their sunglasses afterwards with hands that have been touching a combination of chemicals that equal VX gas so I don't know about any of you guys, but if I was being told that I'm going to go commit this assassination, and I don't care if it's for a hundred bucks or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, using this deadly nerve agent, one, I'm wearing gloves uh, before I even start this whole process. I'm putting on a pair of latex gloves just as a, as a precaution, and I'm on top of that, I, any other precaution that I could possibly think of at this point, masks, all that kind of stuff, if I had to do this, and two. As soon as this thing is done, I'm going to a bathroom and I'm practically showering in that the closest sink I can find without ever touching another part of my body. So to me, again, the behaviors don't line up. They're, the police skewed the investigation. I think they did so to try to appease North Korea so there wasn't issues with whatever relations exist there. And then this is further evidenced by the fact that as soon as the Indonesian government gets involved saying they don't want these charges, there's a very close connection between the Indonesian government and the Malaysian government. So they're willing to drop the charges against one of the two people that had to work together to kill this guy based on their own theory of how it went down. And then when the Vietnamese government reaches out to that, to Malaysia, apparently I've, those relations aren't as close and they they feel like they still need to have a fall person for this so that they can close this case again there's just so many different angles of just illogical behavior by the governments involved everybody could read what it was from surface level this was kim john un taking or making good on his promise to kill his half-brother there's the whole angle of the CIA stuff, which makes total sense to me in terms of this guy was being groomed uh, all throughout his life. Uh, although I will say too, so the reason he's a half brother of Kim Jong-un and not a full brother is because obviously they come from different mothers. Same father, uh, Kim Jong-il is their father, but they have two different mothers because Kim Jong-il had, I think, four wives or at least a wife and three mistresses or whatever that he had children with and 
but this is his eldest son, Kim Jong Nam. So this is the guy that's supposed to, by whatever decree within this dynasty, is supposed to take over North Korea when his father dies. But because his grandfather, so Kim Jong Sung, the guy who ran North Korea for 40 plus years or whatever it was until his death in 94, didn't approve of Kim Jong Nam's mother. Kim Jong Nam as a young boy got sent off to live with his aunt. I think it was his mother's sister. And she kind of raised him and he didn't he wasn't supposed to be in any schools because nobody was supposed to know that he existed and then at some point he got shipped off to Switzerland to go to some schools to make him more worldly and I think that was where he developed a lot of this appreciation for Western culture and capitalism and that kind of stuff so when he got brought back to North Korea in the 90s Again, as he said, he was already falling out of favor with his father because he wasn't adhering strictly to the, the policies that were in place. And then when he tries to make this surreptitious visit to Tokyo Disney, which of course you know, he wants to do because he likes Western culture, this is just a big slap in the face to a country that prides themselves on not having any connection to the Western world. So from that point on, but I, I, what I, my point was up until that point, up until, you know, the late 90s or right around 2000, he was being groomed to become the leader of the country. And part of that is the, the power in the country lies with the army. And he was being groomed to be support. Or he was supported by the army, everything. So he likely had access to a ton of North Korean information in regards to uh, weapons information, progress on, on different things. And even after he went into exile in 2003, he likely still had ways to get some of that information. And I think he did, or at least he was doing a good job of slowly selling it off, if that's what he was doing, to further fund his lifestyle by, again, selling state secrets. And I think that's why you see those assassination attempts began back in 2006. Even though the book that was throwing shade at at Kim Jong-un came out in 2012, which increased the assassination attempts, it was well before that book came out that his half-brother and possibly his father is trying to have him killed. And I think that's because they realize that while he's in exile, he's talking to the media, he's talking to different sources, he's likely talking to intelligence agencies and giving them information on North Korea, which is going to increase the chance that they want to kill him. So I, I don't doubt at all that all of that was going on, that what they call conspiracy theories are probably true in this case. And this was literally just Kim Jong-un closing down another leak of stuff, especially when you talk about that flash drive. Now, I didn't see any evidence that somebody took the flash drive off of him. And I don't know that, I guess I don't know for certain that the Malaysian officials wouldn't have taken it. But what they saw was when they did the forensic examination that this flash drive had been hooked up to the laptop at some point. So they're able to look at 
you know the history on the computer and see that this flash drive was inserted i don't know if they're able to see files file structures that were moved between the laptop and the flash drive or, or not or whether they were just accessed but the fact that this flash drive is now missing makes me think again that he brought the laptop and the flash drive to this vacation met up with somebody there sold the contents of whatever was on the flash drive and you know was killed on his way back so i don't think it's too much of a stretch or too much of a conspiracy theory to say that there was likely some some things going on between him and intelligence agencies that would likely fund his lifestyle because otherwise i don't really know how he would have been funding his lifestyle he doesn't have it said in there that he's a big partier. He liked to drink. He liked to gamble. And Macau is very well known for its gambling. And I'm sorry if I messed up any of the pronunciations in, in this episode. There was a lot in there that I just kind of, I was winging, to be honest. And I just try to consistently either get it wrong or hopefully consistently get it right. But um, that area of China is known for its gambling. If you guys watched, there was a James Bond movie, uh, one of them. I want to say it was Skyfall that uh, some of it is shot in uh, Macau in China where there's these large cas- extravagant casinos and and lights and everything and the architecture is all done up. It's a very kind of ritzy area where there's a lot of money and this is where he's lived since 2000 between 2003 until his death in 2017. So to fund that lifestyle, I have to imagine he had to have a pretty good income source, and he did have close connections to China, so maybe he had you know, backing from either business associates or government in China to that lifestyle, but at the same time, doesn't mean that he couldn't have also been selling state secrets, and uh, eventually, after multiple assassination attempts, one finally was was completed in this case so so that's going to be the case of kim jong nam and i've tried to spread out even the international episodes so we had one in australia our second one was in the ardennes forest in belgium france germany luxembourg area and then this one in asia so trying to get all over the place what's really cool is one of the sites that i use to track the number of downloads which were rapidly approaching a thousand which is awesome guys but one of the sites that I use to track the downloads also shows me the countries in which these are downloading. And I understand some of it could be through VPN, so it's maybe not 100% accurate, but I am seeing a lot of activity in different countries, which is, which again, it's really cool to see that it's being listened to all over the world. And I'm trying to keep track of that. And I know I've got a ton of people in Dublin, Ireland that are listening. And at least... I should say a couple people at this point that have downloaded multiple episodes, if not all of them. Uh, so I'll try to make maybe the 40th episode uh, somehow related to an Ireland case. So if you're one of those guys listening in Dublin, uh, if you have a good case that you want me to cover, again, email me, uh, Productions at gmail.com. I'll see what I can do. International cases are sometimes tough because there's not as much information out there always uh, accessible on the internet uh, for these cases but since this one was such a big case and and obviously involving such a prominent uh, person family country whatever you want to call it um, it, there was plenty to cover but i'll do my best Uh, other than that that's going to be it for today guys appreciate you guys listening 
Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.